Now last night, I read a couple times this morning, I read it again, I have one of the most recent letters from our missionaries. Um, you probably all know them, I just don't want to say their names and where they're serving, so please uh, let me do that. But I, I was looking at it amazed, and be utterly amazed. And he, they say, look what God has done in 2021, despite the pandemic. We didn't know if we were going to go back. We didn't know if we were to stay. And yet we did, and God blessed richly. He says, looking over the past year, there has been great harvest beyond what we could have imagined. There was a Bible study that started three years ago with one pastor. There's now 30 pastors coming together. There were two new churches started. Five more brought together, consolidated, so that they have fellowship and accountability one with another. At the Christmas outreach, 21 different events, there was over 2,300 people received Christ as their Savior. And on the back, it's no less amazing. Isn't that a wonderful thing to see and to hear? Well, you know, on a, on a very practical level, these missionary levels uh, letters serve the purpose of of providing accountability between the missionaries and the sending agencies or, or us as a church to keep us in the loop, so to say, as to what's going on. But the reality, it goes much deeper than that. There is a spiritual level that we need to just contemplate again because it, it really affects everything that we're going to be looking at this morning. These letters overflow with joy. They see firsthand what God is doing in terms of wondrous things that they could never imagine. This is the front line of God's grace to us, the advance of the kingdom, and it comes into our emails every month, and it, it invites us to join, at least vicariously if nothing else, to, to join in in prayer. We have testimonies. We have pictures of real people we have stories of how God has used you know, seemingly small events to bring about great spiritual results. It, they widen our perspective on the kingdom of God, don't they? We tend to be very provincial and think amongst ourselves or our families, but, but they give us a wider picture of what God is doing in the world. And again, they invite us through prayer to really, truly partake with them through prayer. They allow us to rejoice in what, is, what God is doing in all of these far-flung places, even though we can't be there. I, I want to ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you actually sat down with one of these letters, printed it off instead of, instead of just keeping it digitally, printed it off, and intentionally read it with your kids? Children, when was the last time your mom and your dad actually sat down and, and read this to you? you know, we want kids with a, a vision of God, with a passion of God, with a, a, a trust and faith in God. And you know what? This is one of the most easily accessible, wonderful things. These youngsters that are in our hands, they need to see that the, the God who does the miracles in the Bible is continuing to do great and wondrous works in the world around us. We might not necessarily see things where we are, but on the front lines of God's kingdom, they can see the God of the Bible is at work today. Now, 
in a very real sense, as we look at chapter 14, this is a missionary letter for me. Because it, it, it strings together several different places that they're at, several different narratives or, or vignettes, let's say. These are the last stops on what we know are Paul's, is Paul's first missionary journey. He's gone out as upwards to two years now, and in the last weeks, perhaps month or so, these are the stories that are filling his letter for the church back in Antioch, in Syria, and for us today. Verse 27 very specifically says that as they go back to Antioch in Syria, again, not in Turkey where they've just been, they're regaling the church with all of the things that God has done. They say, God has opened a door to the Gentiles. And let us tell you what God's doing. As great as it is to, to get a missionary letter, how much more so is it to actually have someone in front of you? Imagine someone who's just back on furlough. Just back on their first furlough. And they're standing up here. They're excited. They can barely contain themselves. Their eyes are flashing. There's excitement in their voice. And they say, look at what God is doing. Be amazed just like this letter. Now, it seems like every week I'm almost saying that, you know, this is an important juncture in the book of Acts we're looking at today. And I'm going to have to say it again today too. <laughs> what we're looking at is important because we see a major shift in how the gospel is reaching out to the world. Up until now, everything has been focused on those who have uh, some type of a relationship or connection with the worship of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. <coughs> Everywhere they've gone, Paul and Barnabas has, have been proclaiming the gospel, but it's always in the context of the local synagogue. Always in the context of, of the Jews and the believing Gentiles, the, the proselytes who have converted to Judaism. So there is a natural connection that Paul has always gotten and he's always just fed into that right away. But here in Acts 14, something changes. We see the gospel breaking loose of, of, the, of the chains that are anchored to just the Jews alone or those who have converted to to Judaism. It breaks the evangelistic mold uh, of what everything, everyone thought should have happened. And so for the first time, the gospel is loosed in an unbelieving pagan world. What we see is a missional shift in how we understand the gospel, how we're to apply the gospel. <clears throat> now the first vignette we have is Iconium. We saw last week that as they preached faithfully, they were actually forced to get out of Antioch of Pisidia, weren't they? They didn't go undefeated, though. As they left, we read very specifically at the end of chapter 13, that they left filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, at the start of 14, we see them coming to Iconium. Iconium is... Uh, relatively medium-sized town or small city about 80 kilometers to the east of, of uh, Antioch, Pisidia. It, it's kind of wealthy, but it's more Greek than Roman. And as they come into the town, they do the same thing that they've done time and time and time again. They go to the synagogue. And there they, they preach earnestly. 
They preach passionately. They preach persuasively. And God demonstrates His power, the veracity of the truth that they're preaching, by doing signs and wonders through them. And because of all of that, we see many Jews and Gentiles come to saving faith in Christ. And just like so many times before, the unbelieving Jews, those who should have expected the proclamation that the Messiah has come, those who should graciously receive the truth that in Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that God has promised, they hear that and they reject it. So instead of receiving him, they start to build up persecution. Christ has been preached boldly. The scriptures have been quoted time and time and time again. There is a natural connection that is so easy to see for anyone who has faith. And they are without faith. And so they go back and they decide that what we're going to get the leaders and we're going to have a good old-fashioned stoning. We're just going to get rid of these guys. Now, that's important, and we'll come back to it in a second. So just put that to the side, because this is an interesting development that really comes to flower in the second vignette that we have. Now, when we were in Texas, <clears throat> there's all kinds of little colloquialisms that they use. One of them that we heard sometimes was, Mama didn't raise no fool. <laughs> And the idea is that you're raised to use your wits, right? Well, the same is for Paul and Barnabas here. They heard about the stoning, and what do they do? They flee the city and head off to Lystra. So they were bold in preaching, and they persisted and remained there. Increased persecution week by week, being ignored, not being sold items that they needed to live by, hearing uh, the, the swearing or the, 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 the blasphemy that was coming. And yet they continued, they determined to continue to preach the gospel. While all of this danger is mounting, their last decision was that they left. And that's an important aspect to contemplate. Because we often think of the apostles that they were men of such extraordinary faith, such extraordinary conviction, such extraordinary calling, that they would lay down their lives at the drop of a hat. We could never be like them. But you know what? They weren't fools. They were men of faith. But they also knew when it was time to move on. They were determined to take advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel, but they were wise enough to know when to back off when it was necessary. They boldly proclaimed Christ, but moved on to greener pastures when their very lives were at stake. And because of that, I contend to you that they're actually better examples for us because they are people that we can emulate. They're not super saints. They are men of flesh just like us. Our faith drives us and compels us forward. But God has given us a brain, and we're to use it. And I think far too often in our culture these days, we forget to use it. There's a famous poem by Alfred Lloyd Tennyson called The Charge of the Light Brigade. It's about the Crimea War in 1854 and how 600 of Britain's elitist light infantry, sorry, light cavalry, were sent in a frontal assault against the Russian artillery. And it was devastating. It was brutal. They, they went down a valley and all of the guns were lined up against them. It was senseless. 
as Christians. You know what? We often think that bravery, standing for the gospel, means a gospel confronta- a confrontation or a frontal assault on everything that we're looking at. We see it as in the Christian right so often in North America where they're willing to die on small hills. And we need to understand that not everything is worth dying on. We need to be cautious. God has given us a brain. There is wisdom and there's folly. And we're, to call, we're called to know the difference. And, and what Paul and Barnabas decided was that they're going to move on to fight another day. They're going to live today so that they can preach tomorrow. That sounds like a pretty wise thing for us to contemplate in terms of our outreach and our evangelism, our commitment to the gospel. Each of the apostles would indeed lay down their life for Christ when it push came to shove, but they weren't running after martyrdom, and that's important to think about. So they've just left Iconium. This missionary band of at least three, if not a few more, and this is where we start to see things changing because now they come to Lystra. Lystra is unique. <clears throat> it was probably only about 40 or 50, maybe 60 kilometers a little bit farther east than where they just were in Iconium. The people were not well educated, but here's the reality. <laughs> This was basically the Wild West. It was a small town, a lawless frontier town. In the middle of the Roman Empire, here was this little place where the law was taken into their hands all the time. They weren't educated. They, they worshipped Greek gods and not the Roman pantheon of gods. And verse 11 tells us that they still spoke their own language, Lyconian. This was off the beaten path. It was really of no importance in, in the scheme of things. Some of the, the places that they've come to, like Antioch of Pisidia, it was strategically set at the four corners of all of the, all of the trade routes. It was a perfect place. Lystra is nowhere. It would be like tiny Sprucedale in northern Ontario, and I'm sure you've never heard of Sprucedale. So that's what we're talking about here. It was so unimportant that there wasn't even a place of Jewish worship. So when Paul and Barnabas come to Lystra, they don't go to the synagogue to preach the gospel. And, and as they come in, the first thing they spy is this man <clears throat> who has been lame from birth. Verse 8 says he has never walked. He's been crippled. And, and all of that means is he's, he's got no muscles. His bones are brittle or weak. And even if he does stand up somehow, he's got no sense of balance. Paul is preaching. And he looks out and he sees this man sitting there watching him intently. And Paul discerns that he has the faith to believe. And so he commands him, just stand up. The interesting thing is he doesn't just stand up, does he? He leaps up. And he starts walking around. I can't imagine him standing there and looking at people and he says, No cane! Look, I can walk on my own. I don't even know if he maybe even did a little bit of dance, but he stands up and he's rejoicing that he can walk for the first time ever. And when the townspeople see this, what are their reactions? The crowds. Now, 
that word crowds is a plural. So we're talking hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. You know, it's packed. They start calling Paul, Zeus, and Hermes, or uh, Paul, Hermes, and, and Barnabas, Zeus. And then they say something that is shocking. And get this, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. Can we grasp the power of the testimony, the things that they just saw? Here are these people in Lystra. They hear uh, Paul preaching, and then all of a sudden they, they see this man whom they've known for decades stand on his feet at the command of the apostles and start walking around. The problem, however, is that either Paul's message was so badly misunderstood or more likely, and this is where we're leading this morning, he didn't yet have the chance to fully explain the nuance, the meaning of the gospel. Why? Because there was no Jewish temple. There was no Jewish understanding. Uh, there was no connections naturally to say, oh yeah, we're waiting for a Messiah. Is this him? Oh, we've heard that the Jews have one God. Well, you represent him? These people were totally pagan. Now, if you remember your class from high school in terms of Greek mythology, Zeus is the head of the gods, right? He's the master of the sky and master of, of thunder. Hermes is the son of Zeus. The, the guy, if you remember, had sandals with, with little wings on the bottom. <laughs> but he was the patron saint of travelers. And he was the messenger of the gods. From archaeology, we also know that the people in Lystra actually worship the god Zeus. Right outside of the city, a big temple to Zeus. It was at the entrance. You couldn't get into Lystra. He was the patron saint of Lystra. Everything that happened in the spiritual life of Lystra revolved around Zeus. Does this start to make any sense now? Why, when they see the miracle, a miracle that only a god could do, that the chief priest who, looking after the temple, says, you know, let's get the oxen, let's get the garlands, let's come out, we'll have ourselves a feast, we've got to sacrifice. Well, add to that one more layer of complexity. Because we know from the Roman poet Ovid that there was a belief that Hermes and Zeus actually did visit this town once. And they didn't recognize them. And they paid the consequence. The story goes that <clears throat> the gods had disguised themselves as men and they had come looking for a place to stay at night. And finally, after being rejected by hundreds and hundreds of families, one elderly couple by the name of Philemon and Bacchus welcomed them in and, and, and gave them the best of everything that they had. In appreciation, Zeus and Hermes transformed their, their humble little house into a grand temple, made them the priest and priestess. And, and even when they died, they immortalized this couple in living trees. To, to the rest of the people in the town, this was what they were waiting for. The gods when they were turned away by all of those other families and they said, there's no room for you, they turned around and wiped them all out. They, they killed everybody 
and they burned their houses to the ground. Can you see why the people of Lystra were so eager to worship Paul and Barnabas? They weren't going to make the, the same mistake twice. They were going to do it right this time. So, yes, get out the bulls, get out the garland. We're going to have this great barbecue, and we're going to worship them. Zeus and Hermes have come back. Now, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this story before. I've only been here three years, but it's a perfect example. If you've heard it, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> my second year university, I went back home to Huntsville, where my parents were living at the time, where I grew up. At university, I didn't study hard. I was the president of the gaming club. I was the top dungeon master of Dungeons and Dragons at the university. I was pretty proud of it. I went home one weekend. I don't remember what month it was, but it was in fairly good weather. And right downtown Huntsville, if you know the town, right at the lift bridge, right there, as I was walking with one or two friends, somebody I barely knew actually bowed and got down on their knees and bowed to me and says, I'm unworthy. He recognized me as a dungeon master and thought, okay, well, you know, this guy is at least worthy of, of mocking, but, you know, of worshiping somehow. Even as a Christian, <laughs> I knew that that was wrong. I knew that it was inappropriate. I was shocked and I was embarrassed that someone would get down on their hands and knees and bow down to me in the middle of the street in broad daylight. Can you imagine what Paul and Barnabas must have felt like when their message was misunderstood and the priest comes out to offer sacrifice? They're horrified. And so horrified they start ripping their clothing, their cloaks, in anguish. And they start yelling, look, we are men like you. We're, we're men of flesh and blood. There's, blood. There's nothing unique about us. Don't worship us. You need to turn from the vain things of the world that you've been worshiping to now worshiping the living God. Stop worshiping the things that have no benefit for you. Stop worshiping things that are useless in your life. Stop worshiping things that have no real or intrinsic power to do anything in your life. Turn to the living God and worship Him alone. Now, at this point, there should be one question going through each and every one of our minds. What's the difference between Iconium and Lystra? What's going on that Paul and Barnabas are now being uh, worshipped as gods? And the answer lies in remembering that in Iconium, Paul always went to the synagogue to preach, or he went because there was a synagogue. There was no synagogue in Lystra. In Iconium, he could go to the synagogue, he could preach a clear message, Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. He is your Savior. He is the Davidic King. He is the fulfillment of every covenant promise God has ever given to us as the people of God. Receive Him as yours. And he could do that because Iconium was biblically literate. Did you catch that? Biblically literate. What I mean by that is that a large part of the population were already aware of the God of the Jews. Many of them even worshipped Him already. So they had a natural connection, a natural affinity, a natural relationship to what Paul was already preaching. Lystra, on the other hand, 
there was no synagogue. There, there were no Jews that any historians know of. They had no concept of God as the Bible reveals him. They had never heard of any of the stories of the Old Testament, let alone any of the promises God would be given to his people. They were biblically illiterate. They were totally pagan. Lystra was a pagan culture with no natural biblical connections for Paul to use to preach the gospel. Paul couldn't preach that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Messiah sent from God because they had no idea that God had even promised a Savior and Messiah. He couldn't preach that Jesus was the eternal king, <coughs> the Lion of David, because they didn't know who David was. <laughs> he couldn't quote large sections of the scriptures to prove to, him, prove to them that Jesus fulfilled all these things because they didn't know anything about the Jewish scriptures. He couldn't call them to repentance for sinning against a holy God because they couldn't envision in their polytheistic mind, in their worship of all of these other gods, a single, perfectly holy, all-powerful, righteous God. The gods of the Greek were fickle. They were capricious. They changed their minds from one day to the next. They did not have righteousness, and they were filled with the unbridled passions just like men are. That's why people, uh, Paul says to the people, for a while God has permitted you to worship these things, to walk in the ways that, that you have designed, but now you must turn from these things to worship the living God. All of this is useless, but there is a God <coughs> who has made heaven, who has made earth, who has made the oceans, and is the ruler of all. Let us tell you about him. Do you see what Paul is forced to do? He's forced to do what we call contextualize his message. Contextualize. Now we're not told exactly what Peter was preaching up to this point, how he started in Lystra, but his message was badly misunderstood, wasn't it? That's why the people wanted to worship him and Barnabas. Him and Barnabas. So Paul had to step back for a second. And instead of talking about Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these things, instead of talking about sin and a holy God, he steps back and he focuses on the uniqueness and the singular worthiness of Yahweh as the living God. He had to say, I I've got no natural connections with this culture. So let me just start with the very basics. There is one living and true God. And let's start from there. In a culture where there are many gods <clears throat> and no understanding of the God of Israel, it was necessary to start with that very basic presentation that Yahweh alone is worthy of praise. And, and this brings us right back to the healing of the lame man in verses 10 to 11. You're thinking, well, what does this all have to do with it? It was just a miracle, right? Well, what other story do we have in the book of Acts that parallels this? What other healing of a lame man do we have? Acts chapter 3, right? In Acts chapter 3, it is the apostle Peter who's doing the healing. It's a man who's lame from birth, but this time it's in Jerusalem and it's at the very doors of the temple. 
God moves in a great and mighty way and confirms the preaching with the healing of this man and demonstrating that indeed Jesus Christ is the Messiah. For no one else could do any of these things except it be the Christ. Here now in Acts 14, Paul heals a lame man. The difference is this man is pagan. He's got no natural connection to any knowledge of God. He's in a pagan town. He's, in, he's near a pagan temple. There is no prior understanding of God. In the same way, God is confirming the gospel it is coming to the, to the Jews in, in Acts chapter 3. He is confirming that the gospel is being loosed unto the Gentiles in the same power and the same message. What Luke wants us to know is, is that it is the same God who heals both. It is the same power of God that brings healing and salvation to both Jew and Gentile. God is, and get this, God is not constrained by a culture that is biblically illiterate. As surely as he can open a door and, and give healing in Jerusalem, Luke is saying to us, he can do the same thing even in a pagan society, in a pagan city such as Lystra. God is not constrained by the limits of biblical understanding, by what they may or may not know. He has a sure plan. And his, in his sovereign outworking of that plan, he is bringing the fullness of all those who would be saved together simply through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. As simple as it may be, God opens hearts to truth. Now, even with all Paul's pleading, they could barely restrain them from offering those sacrifices, could they? And so again, we start to see the persecution. This is where, let's go back. A couple minutes ago I said just park it there and bring it forward. We'll, we'll now think about this again. Suddenly, a group of angry Jews, not only from Iconium, not only from the place that they had just left, but from Antioch of Pisidia, a hundred miles away, show up in Lystra. They stone Peter, or Paul, and they drag him out of the city and leave him for dead. How angry do you have to be to travel a hundred miles to shut someone up. A better question would be, if you came in a car this morning, imagine going out and on Dundas here, there's some road rage, you get involved and there's some honking, whatever. They would follow you all the way to London just to shout at you again. That's the difference. Basically, from here to the outskirts of London, that's the difference between Antioch of Pisidia now to Lystra. And they have willingly, desiringly gone all that way just to confront the apostles. How hard does your heart have to be against God that you would intentionally just say, I'm going to take four days just to get there, perhaps another four days back. And everything else gets on hold. I just want to confront these people. And what makes the situation even worse, if you can imagine this, it does get worse, because this group of angry Jews who are hardened against God now convince the crowds at Lystra to participate in the stoning of God. Get it? 
The Jews are not supposed to have any dealings with Gentiles. Lystra is a pagan town. There, there are no Jews here. The Jews are not supposed to have meals with Gentiles. They're not supposed to be, eat with them or, or stay at their homes. As much as possible, they are to avoid all contact with Gentiles. And yet their hatred was so fierce against the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, that they willingly became allies with the Gentiles, with these pagans, so that they could kill the disciples, the apostles. <coughs> that is a wickedly evil heart. The truth is, what we see here is that the kingdom of God does not advance without trials, without challenges, without tribulations. And that very message is part of the word of encouragement, believe it or not, a word of encouragement that the apostles give to the churches as they're going back to Syria. They stop at all these places that people have just come to Christ, these fledgling churches, and they say, you know what? You have to be firm in the faith. Persecution is going to be yours. It's going to come, but stand firm in Jesus Christ. And once the apostles, uh, or so the disciples, find Paul, he, he's, he's alive outside of the city, presumably, I, I would take it, near the very temple of Zeus himself. So the reality is, one minute they were going to worship him as coming from Zeus or being Zeus himself. The next, they were actually appeasing Zeus by killing him. It, just a change of the mind like that. It's hard to believe. <clears throat> they turn around and they briefly go on to Derby, and then they start retracing their steps back through Lystra, through Iconia, through Antioch at every place where the persecution had grown fierce, where the people had pursued them to stone them. What determination, what commitment, what, what courage. And as they go, they establish elders. They, they say, you need spiritual leaders. They pray for them, they fast for, with them, and they commit them, commit them into the hands of God. It says very specifically here, encourage them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You've seen the crowds rise up against us even now and all we're doing is preaching the gospel. You have to stay here. You're going to be the face of Christ in this community. They're going to hate you. They're going to ostracize you. They're going to do all kinds of horrible things. Hold fast to your faith. We read lastly that from Iconium, they went to Pamphylia on the coast, then to Perga, then to Atalia, and they ended up finally where they started off, in Antioch in Syria, where they gathered the church together. And at the very end, verse 27, it's a wonderful verse. It says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Again, it's wonderful to get this letter. How much more do you think it Paul and Barnabas having gone out for the first time and coming back and they're giving all of these real stories? First-hand uh, testimonies of what God is doing in all of these pagan places, especially in places that are totally devoid of any understanding of who God is. 
So as they speak, and you can just see they're, they're excited and they're sharing all of these wonderful things that God has opened a door. He has opened a door that was so small because they had so little understanding of the gospel and yet God opened it and they were saved. Can you imagine what the mood must have been like as they were sitting around the, the tables or reclining and sharing all of these wonderful, wonderful stories? That even in such a pagan city as Lystra, God is sovereign. Through the simple proclamation of the most basic truths of the Christian message, God can save. It's truly a turning point in the gospel, isn't it? Because from now on, we're going to see the gospel going forth in different uh, journeys, and different missionary adventures. And it's going to go around the Roman Empire. No longer is it constrained simply to those who have an understanding of the biblical God. It's going out to Rome. It's going out to the farthest reaches of, of the Middle East. So what are, what's the takeaway of some of these things? What, what's the spiritual implications for us this morning? Well, number one, the gospel divides and the kingdom of God never advances without trials and struggles. We've seen that time and time again throughout the book of Acts, haven't we? And we're going to see it again as we continue to go through. Wherever the gospel goes, there are those whose hearts will be hardened, even to the point of persecuting the church and taking the life of those who are simply preaching the gospel. In Luke chapter 12, the apostle himself records Jesus' words when, when he says, you know, you want to know the impact that this is going to bring in society. Jesus says this, From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three, and they will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother law. The gospel is so profound that it's going to rupture every natural relationship in this world. How can you not expect persecution? It's going to happen. And speaking of this very thing, of the hatred that the apostles are going to experience in the world, Jesus says in John 15, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We understand these things here, but very rarely do we ever experience them. The truth is, the gospel, the kingdom of God, will not advance unless it takes territory away from Satan. Doesn't that make sense? If the kingdom is going forth, it has to be taking the land or the terrain from somewhere else, and that is the kingdom of Satan. And you can bet your boots he's not going to go quietly, is he? He is going to kick and scream. Even so, we are to follow the example of the apostles, Paul and Barnabas. When they went to Iconium and Lystra, they were bold in their preaching. They were resolved to stay as long as they could, to be as clear as they could, to be as forceful as they could on the gospel message. And if they had to, they were willing to leave to come back another day. Even so, even with the persecution, on their way home, they did what? They stopped on every 
one of the places where people came to faith in Christ, where a church had been planted. They were courageous. Paul had just been stoned within an inch of his life, and he's going right back a couple days later to, later to Lystra to encourage the believers. And then he goes on to Iconium, and then to Antioch. They've just traveled uh, four days there, four days back. They've probably gone back home, and they're, they're sitting around supper, and they're, they're talking to their kids. Yeah, remember those guys that preached the gospel about Jesus? Well, we went, and we killed them. Oh, he's here? <laughs> How's that possible? But the courage is to continue to go back to every place where the gospel is preached. They have a determination to, to build up the faith of these new believers and to establish godly leadership because without godly leadership, they would not survive. And when they got back to Antioch in Syria, at least one of them, Paul, was badly bruised I can't imagine. He's been, you know, stoned within an inch of his life. Stoning means taking big stones and throwing them at people, right? He could have had a concussion. He's gone back only days, maybe a week later. He's back where they've sent him off. He's telling these wonderful stories of what God has done. And he's black and blue all over. That's faith. That's courage. Being committed to the advance of the gospel necessitates courage. It necessitates steadfastness to the call because there can be no advancement of the gospel, no advancement of the kingdom unless there is toils and snares and dangers. And it, it, we need to ask ourselves, if we're not experiencing those things, how determined and how committed are we to sharing the gospel where God has placed us? And the reality is, it's only as we are willing to count that cost, to courageously go where God has called us to go, that He will actually use us for His glory. So that was the first thing. The first one is that the gospel divides and the kingdom of God never advances unless there's toils, troubles, and dangers. Number two, the power of God to open doors is the same today as it was then. And that's something we really need to grasp because there are some of us who are struggling with unsaved spouses, with un unsaved children. And we need to know that God is the same today as He was then. Now, every once in a while, we may go into a home or we could go into a restaurant and we'll see a little idol there if they're a Buddhist or something. But most of us, that will never happen, right? Our culture isn't necessarily one that, that has all of these false uh, gods on display in, in your home. But do we still have false idols? Oh, yeah. If you're not worshiping the true God, you're putting your faith and your trust in the things of the world, in money, in hedonism, in your job, in your identity, whatever it is, you're putting your trust and your faith in vain things. Our culture may be may not be as biblically illiterate as Lystra. Because there is still, for, for lack of a strong church necessarily in, North America, in Canada, there is still a latent understanding of the Christian God. For as, even though we're not as biblically illiterate, if God can save and heal a man in such a place as Lystra, He can heal and save today in Toronto. 
in a culture that is becoming more separated from the truth of, of the Word of God. It's leaving behind a biblical worldview, leaving behind a biblical perspective, leaving behind um, biblical uh, morality, becoming illiterate in so many things. We have an assurance that God can and will save because it is His kingdom and His glory that is at stake. We may need to step back and reflect on the culture. We need to step back and, and say, well, if I'm going to be sharing with this person, what do they know about God? What don't they know about God? How basic do I have to go? We, ha we have to look at things and say, how can I contextualize the truth of the gospel so that I can start with the basics? And even with the basics, I trust that God can and will save if he so desires. So depending on how much or how little they know, understanding that God can use us in whatever situation. And the reality is, if you're not in Christ, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, you've put your faith in all of these other vain things. The message here is we are to call people to leave these vain things behind, to worship the living God, to, to demonstrate the uselessness of any spiritual truth, any spiritual impact of eternity, anything valuable here and now, it's all useless. It's, all, there's, it's powerless. Only the living God can bring healing. And this is the main point of this section, is that if God can save in Lystra, He can save in Etobicoke. If He can save in Lystra, He can save in Scarborough. No matter how little you are prepared, he will take your basic words and use them for his glory. He can and will save your neighbor. He can and will save your friend. He can and will save your husband. You need to trust in him and persist in sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, as simple as it may be. That's two. Number three, the providence of God. Interesting thing is when Paul and Barnabas left Antioch of Pisidia, we're told that they were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That must mean that when they left Iconium and went to Lystra, it wasn't an accident. If you're filled by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is leading you. So it's the Holy Spirit who is leading them in these vignettes. And I challenge you that through every step of the book of Acts, it is God who is guiding and leading them to every place that they go. And he's even using the increased persecution from one place to another so that the apostles, the disciples, are in the right place at the right time to do what God wants them to do. Think about it as, as a toothpaste tube. The toothpaste doesn't come out unless you give it a bit of a squeeze. So the Holy Spirit is using that persecution to provide the right amount of pressure so that they get to the place where they're going to be in God's perfect timing. And in that sense, I want you to consider where you are this morning. Whether it's this church, whether it's where you are in your life, where you are in your work, it's not by accident. And it's, we're to use every situation that, that we find ourselves in to share the gospel courageously, persistently. 
You may look at your life and say, well, we got here by wise decisions and counsel by elders and other Christians. Yes, we're here. You, you may have gotten here by poor decisions and poor advice, but the reality is, is you're still in the place that God has designed for you to be. The only question is, what are you going to do? Will you be persistent? Will you be courageous? Will you be determined to share the gospel, knowing that Christ can even use your feeble words to save? Now, throughout the book of Acts, Luke often, as he's writing these narratives for us, brings spiritual connections between the book of Acts and the book of Joshua. It's not something that we've looked at very much in depth because they're sublime, they're underneath a lot of things, but they do pop out a little bit here. It's not only in the book of Joshua is Joshua himself a foreshadow of Christ, but many of the events of Israel as they enter into the promised land, Luke foreshadows as the Holy Spirit victoriously leads the church forward into the world. Instead of a political conquest, there is a spiritual conquest. God is leading his people. And knowing that that's in the back of Luke's mind as he's writing these things down, I can't help but think of another report that's connected to Joshua and Israel. Numbers 13, Moses sending out the 12 spies. He sends out a spy ahead of each of the families to go and look into the area and say, what is there? We need to know what we're up against before we go in. And they all come back. They all have these wonderful, great reviews. Yes, this is a land flowing of milk and honey. There is so much here. There's resources. It's wonderful. <coughs> but ten of them, ten of them come back and say, you know what? The people are too powerful. Their cities are huge. They're strong. There's no way that we're going to be victorious going into the promised land. And it's only Caleb and Joshua who come back by faith and say, yes, let's go. God has promised. In much the same way, Paul and Barnabas have now come back to Antioch with another report. Something amazing has happened. Something astonishing has happened. They have gone out into this hinterland and has come back now and they, they say the harvest is plentiful. The question is, as we end the chapter, what's the church going to do? How are they going to make a decision? Because surely, as we're going to see next week, there are some real theological problems that, 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 that they, they need to work out. The question at the end of this chapter is, God is reaping a harvest. What are we going to do about it? The gospel is for all people, no matter how little they have of an understanding or preconception of God already. And the same thing is for us here this morning. As we end, we have that same question. God has called us. He's placed us. He has given us an example. He has demonstrated so vividly a testimony that He is the same God. He will save in Lystra and He will save today. And as we go out this morning, the question, the challenge to us is, how are we going to be like the ten spies and say, well, uh, there's just too much danger out there. I'm not capable. Or are we going to be like Joshua and say, let's go. God has given us a promise. He has demonstrated His power. We are to follow in obedience. Let us pray.